Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling. So welcome to today's show. Very excited to have Mike Stevenson on from a company that really needs no introduction, DocuSign. DocuSign IPO'd in April of 2018, uh, but prior to that, they have raised a phenomenal $537 million in funding and post IPO another 629. And their share price has really climbed from $24 to 39 the same day. And you know, up around the $300 mark with phenomenal 60% year-on-year growth. Their Dublin office started out with seven folks in a very first round hire to now being well over 450 employees with 4,000 worldwide. Um, Mike has um, done the expat thing in EMEA piece, which we've um, covered on prior shows, but um, Mike has been here for, for almost three years and now relocated back to North America. He has run the um, biz dev team and we're gonna dive right into that and you know learn from the experience that he's uh, witnessed here. But uh, first and foremost, welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks Ross and John, uh, it's great to be here. Wonderful, look, let's get stuck in. Um, take us through your career so far uh, to date, if you would, maybe your college experience, your first roles, and, you know, what led you to to be uh, RVP, and, and, you know, what's the path to get there, and what are some of the, you know, junctures and inflection points along the way, if you could share? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I went to the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, and uh, it's a great school out of, out of Los Angeles, where uh, I actually met my wife. So I uh, really enjoyed my time there. Uh, one of the uh, things I did at the end of my tenure was I really wanted to study abroad. And so I, but I, but I didn't want to miss my time at university because I was having so much fun. So I decided to study abroad actually the quarter after I graduated. So it didn't really count towards my diploma or any credits there. Uh, but I knew I wouldn't be missing out on any good times at UCLA. So I ended up going to Buenos Aires and uh, studying Spanish. My soon-to-be wife uh, also ended up on the same program, so uh, that was really fortunate. And so we uh, were in Argentina learning Spanish, getting the opportunity to travel, and, and really enjoying the experience. I think we took tango classes, we traveled to Uruguay, Chile, and just really enjoyed uh, being on the cusp of entering the workplace and, and future adult-related responsibilities. While I was there, <laughs> yeah, yeah, those uh, those are weighing on us a bit. But while I was there, uh, and why I bring this story up, it was right when the financial crisis started to have an impact on uh, on banks and the job market. I don't, you know, we were seeing all this news through the lens of Buenos Aires. That was, you know, we're seeing the news basically, um, you know, it's English news, but it's uh, also have, you know, headers and, and uh, taglines in Spanish. And we're seeing this and I'm thinking, oh, 
I am eventually going to come back to the United States and I'm going to be one of these people looking for a job. My heart was slowly sinking and I tried to uh, really enjoy the moment, but it was certainly weighing on my mind that we were in this financial crisis. Uh, jobs were getting eliminated, uh, companies were going bankrupt, and I was going to get going in the workforce right at that time. So when I came back, I obviously had that anxiety uh, weighing on me, but I also had this other competitive fire in my belly as I saw some of my colleagues, or sorry, I guess former classmates, start to get promoted in their current roles. They've been graduated you know, only since June and I'm back in November, but they're either getting promoted or advertising some, celebrating some success they'd had on LinkedIn. And I could just feel this fire in my belly that I, I felt behind. I felt like I needed to get ahead and I needed to do something that can get me further and faster in my career. And the go-to career for that really is sales. Uh, if you put the your success into your own hands, it's very much a meritocracy. You know, work hard and deliver results, and then you're rewarded in terms of career advancement. And so, I, I you know, really narrowed in on the sales field and got into one of uh, one of the few sales jobs at the time, given that it was uh, you know a very interesting market. And it was it was selling a, a product that was bit of an innovative uh, voice over IP sort of telecom solution that bundled in a lot of IT solutions that were really new at the time. And this is 2008 when most businesses had hardly a website. They weren't really using email for the full capability. They might have had an AOL email address. And so this company, CBeyond, integrated a lot of those into this voice over IP managed IT services bundle uh, for small medium businesses. But, but make no um, ifs, or buts about it. It was a turnover, high burnout type of sales role. The one where you know, you're calling 40 dials in an hour and uh, you're knocking on doors and shaking hands and getting a lot of rejections. So I think the average tenure in that that company was six to nine months for sales reps. It just, it was a lot of burnout. But I, I ended it, I committed myself to you. I said, no matter what, I'm going to be here a year. I'm going to do everything they tell me. I'm going to work really hard. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but it won't be because I didn't leave everything on the table. And fast forward a year, I had achieved deep, pretty good success in the, the position, sold some meaningful size deals and I really developed a good brand and started to think, what's next here? I kind of I set this one-year mark for myself and I hit that year. I kind of had this existential crisis. Okay, cool. You made it. You never really planned past this point, um, but you're here. So what now? And that's when I started to get the bug to get into leadership. Uh, and that that's when I started to make inroads towards being a team lead uh, and eventually a sales manager. And from there, I ended up being a sales manager for, for the next five, six years with that company, uh, managing a team of AEs who are selling into the small, medium-sized business space and uh, really loved it. What I, what I loved was the ability to have an impact on someone's early sales career. And a lot of salespeople come in, they have high ambitions, but not a lot of skills and not really the roadmap to get there. 
And so the, the trials and tribulations early in someone's sales career are high. There are a lot of highs, there are a lot of lows. And I felt like being able to coach somebody through those and, and be really counselor, mentor, sales coach, you know, cheerleader, all these things all together in one was a really great way to develop a strong relationship with someone. And, you know, that, that absolutely true. I mean, I'm looking back on my, one of my first sales teams from 10 years ago, and I'd absolutely call any one of them up and we'd have a great conversation and, and you know, potentially even go work for each other at some point, and, you know, if, if our stars aligned. So, you know, I think that was, that really resonated. was really true. And so, you know, I saw that and did that for the next five or six years. But as, you know, CBON grew and, and the world changed from a technology perspective, CBON aimed to evolve to being more of a cloud type company. They're really trying to be an Amazon Web Services competitor. And I, I share this story because, you know, this is a similar transition that DocuSign is going through in our, our transition to the agreement cloud. I think it's something that a lot of sales organizations go through at some point um, as the business decides to evolve to a, a different vision, one that's more future-facing and is looking towards where the market's headed. And that's what CBM is doing, rather than focusing on this sort of voice over IP, IT managed services solution, which was even then becoming a bit more outdated as companies got up to speed on building their own websites, getting their own email servers, having BlackBerry servers. That's right, BlackBerry was big at the time. and uh, so they started to move towards the cloud environment. They wanted to compete with Amazon Web Services. And we made that transition, I'd say, really bought into it fully, uh, not just from a product and market fit standpoint, I think also from a career perspective. I knew that that's where the market was headed. And if we could be experts in selling it, then we would be really great assets to the job market beyond uh, beyond this company. And, and though they didn't really achieve the level of success that I think the executives were looking for. Uh, you know, we did start to make start to make some inroads. We were really competing against Amazon Web Services, and just you know, they kept they they beat us uh, many many times, and that's where the company was sold. So I was faced with a, a crossroads of where to go with my career, and jumped into uh, DocuSign. It was a bit of a a, a no brainer to come into a company that had such a smooth and easy value proposition, one where customers actually liked uh, talking to you, where they talked really positive about your service. You know, we used to have this saying that no news was good news uh, at CBON, but at, at DocuSign, it's just such a different experience. People saying, oh, I love your product. This is, oh, this is great. I want to think about how to do more. And that, that whole transition was something I'd never experienced before. I just, I, it took me even a few months to wrap my head around that. Uh, and so, and, you know, was able to, to, to get into work with DocuSign and I made a bit of a, a, a career transition. I'd been managing sales teams and, and working with AEs going to the full sales cycle. So though I was aware of what it took to generate leads from an outbound perspective, it really, you know, I, I was managing the zero to hundred percent of the sales cycle. It wasn't my primary focus. But I, I took the opportunity to get into DocuSign in SaaS, and it was really heavily focused on you know, lead generation through the trial motion uh, to jump into running an SDR team there. Uh, and the SDR team at the time was uh, was 32 people. And I, and I have to say, you know, coming from this environment where we were kicking, scratching, and clawing for every lead, every conversation we could have, you know, coming into this environment where 
all of a sudden we had more leads and we could even follow up with. It just blew my mind. You know, how could we be in this situation? Uh, it took me probably five or six months to really wrap my head around how there were leads we didn't call. Now I gradually eventually, you know, learned that there is a lead prioritization model and really not everyone is, is the right fit uh, for that conversation to get to a commercial plan. Uh, but it was a it was a really cool role to get into because again going back to what I loved about managing a sales team these are people really early in their sales career they're eager for coaching they're eager for guidance they're very receptive to it and so you get this opportunity to shape somebody's career and have great relationships with them uh, that that really last a long way and you know then another example I'll come back to the U.S. after being gone for two and a half three years and. I actually have some people on my team now that I hired six years ago. And so it's really funny to see that, uh, to see that come through full circle. Wow. Okay. So, so let's dive into some of that. So you were um, leading the SDR team and then you flipped to move to Europe, specifically to Dublin. So um, that brings forth, and for any of our listeners who don't know, DocuSign is firmly in the rocket ship category. So you've obviously gone from massive scale in the US to Europe um, to coming to Dublin, which is a you know, premier location for um, US tech, as everyone probably knows. But I'm curious to know, first of all, what was the cultural shift that you kind of experienced? There's practicalities of moving to Dublin that I'm, I'm curious about. But also, what was your big learnings throughout the process of figuring out EMEA versus the US? And you're kind of a more of a homogeneous versus heterogeneous market. Maybe if you could share some insights there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so I came into to DocuSign Dublin, uh, which is headquarters, our EMEA office, May 2018. And in the lead up, part of the decision to go there was this consistent theme that we heard from the executives on, on calls, either internal or as we want public external about this, the, the power of our international expansion and, and the motion and the investment that was happening there. So when I decided to come over, it was a big part to be part of that international growth, that, that rapid growth that we were forecasting to have. And I had a conversation with the, uh, the VP of GM at the time, Ronan Copeland, and I said, Ronan, what, what are you looking for out of people to come here? And he said, we're looking for builders and we're looking for people who can really deal with the fast paced environment that we have uh, here in Dublin and, and, and specifically, you know, in our EMEA office. And I thought to myself, great. Uh, you know, I've been at DocuSign now at this point for four years. It's, you know, this rocket ship in North America too. And uh, yeah, I mean, we've been building everything from scratch here. So I'll head over there. I've, I've got that experience, that know-how, and, and that'll be that'll be that. Uh, but as I told Ronan, and I really, uh, it should have heeded what he was saying a little bit more. Getting into the Dublin office of EMEA, I felt even coming out of North America, it was like, jumping on a treadmill going at full speed and you're at a, a medium jock it just you know your body arches you get thrown forward and you're thinking wow this is going at a speed i i couldn't even fathom um so it really was a, a quick adjustment to a whole different pace of business and i think one of the things that you know they say we say it a lot in the states and, and you hear it a lot in europe as well is when you have both entities on, on a call. A lot of times you'll hear your, an American colleague refer to Europe. 
Like, well, when we do things in Europe and Europe isn't Europe, it's not one thing. I think coming from the US, we, you know, we're used to this model of the United States. We have all these states, whether it's Alabama, Texas, Indiana, California, Oregon, they're all different. They have unique uh, things going. They have slightly different rules. They have, you know, potentially different tax rates. But all in all, you can cross the borders. You can do business. Uh, you, you know, you have this federal umbrella that makes it, you know, all speak the same language. All have pretty similar uh, buying motions and, and trends. You know, so we think of sometimes Europe in a similar type of mindset. Well, you know, we've got these states here like Germany and. Uh, France and the UK, but it's, you can't think of it like that at all. It is completely unique entities. And so as much as we were building in the US, we were building for a party of one, you know, in English, go to market strategy for one country, one entity. And you know, we weren't changing. Well, when you talk to somebody on the East Coast, do this differently. It's just, it's not like that. So when you're scaling and building for scale in the US, it's it's simpler than in EMEA for that very reason, where in EMEA, you're trying to grow, and, and we were trying to grow four core markets, uh, France, Germany, Benelux, and the UK, UKI. And as we were doing that, you know, that's four different languages, it's four different go-to-market strategies, it's four different sets of partner relationships that have different structures. And so adapting uh, to that, meant that we had to go at an even faster pace than we did in the U.S. because the expectations for growth were you know, similar to what they had been in the U.S. at the, at the growth point, but we had to go to market in four different core markets. And so that meant just building and scaling a, a lot of added complexities inserted there. How do you ensure, Mike, that you, know, you set the right expectations with uh, either the uh, executive team, leadership team, or, or, or the board over in the USA, who, in my experience, um, sometimes really just don't have uh, a deep pedigree in international expansion. How, uh, what things, or how did you, uh, how did you ensure you manage those expectations correctly? Well, John, I think that was a bit of my superpower. Um, and I, I'd love to take a, a credit for it as if I did something. But I think just naturally it was, it, I, I was in a good place because here I was an American, been been working in Dublin for, sorry, Dachstein for four years. And then I come over to Europe. So a lot of these things that we'd hear from our European colleagues on certain calls, we'd be on a call, we'd have, um, you know, the head of sales development at the time from EMEA there. And then we'd have you know, myself representing uh, sales development in the US. And then we'd, we'd be talking about things and, you know, where the European colleague would say, and everybody, like, you can't do that here. It's just different. And, you know, coming from our, the US lens, it was like, really, is it, you know, how different is it? And it, I don't know if that always resonated as much um, because, we just don't have the frame of reference in the U.S. Like our comparison is just different. Um, and we think of it, again, sort of like that Alabama, Texas, Indiana type example. But I, for for me coming into EMEA, when we get on the same calls, you know, I was an American who had been working for four years in the U.S. So I was talking to people that where I'd been that American colleague, you know, I'm talking to our go-to-market team. and I'd been the person in the U.S. advocating for something that arguably may not have worked in the same way in EMEA. So now when I'm on the call and saying, hey, 
I actually live here. I'm here every day. I see this. I do this. We can't do it that way. Um, I think that that did really add a lot of credibility to that to that voice. But I can completely understand the basis of the question, which is it can be challenging, you know, because we were we were hearing similar things while, um, you know, we were hearing similar things before I moved over there. And I think when I was there, I just added this, like, hey, I have worked with you before this sort of collaborative voice that was um, just different. Right. And, and that really, I think, helped in framing up some of the challenges that we have in Europe that you just don't have in going to market in the U.S. That's very interesting because it's not just sales, is it? It's, it's marketing as well. You know, I mean, try try telling, you know, when, when you're building motions for certain territories and, and sales plays, you know, try try telling someone in the USA that nobody in Germany gives a shit about the Super Bowl. <laughs> you, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the icons and kind of all that stuff is sometimes does not resonate in the European market because it's very American. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, some of the collateral, you know, some of the stuff with images and pictures of the Super Bowl, you know, people touching down stuff and, you know, although, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's improving. I mean, I mean, you know, there, there, there is such an uptick in, in people watching American sports now in Europe. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal um, uh, compared to, say, five years ago. But that's very interesting um, kind of the way you describe that, because that would be my experience from uh, working with some American organizations where, um, you know, some some sales directors, some sales managers would make their way over from the US into Europe. And I think it's highly effective, you know, to kind of be the glue between those two organizations, because you have the upside of kind of sending someone who knows and understands the business uh, like you. And you mentioned earlier that, if, you know, a few of the SDRs you hired in the early days are now on your team, which is great. So if you look, if you look at that in the context, if you look at it in the context that A player SDRs are tomorrow's rock star account executives, then you need to make sure that you hire correctly or, or that you really hire right. So in your view, what separates SDRs who are kind of ringing the gong in success from those who are, you know, pounding the phone in frustration. Yeah, you know, and you bring up the SDR hiring is arguably more challenging than some of the more tenured roles that you hire for because of the lack of work experience. At that. So, so sorry, when I say SDR, and I meant, I meant, I meant to clarify this, is SDR, um, it, it, your understanding, um, is that inbound or outbound? Does an SDR do inbound or outbound or both? Yeah, so good question. So we had in EMEA three roles, ADR, SDR, and MDR. ADR was uh, similar to the BDA function at Salesforce. It is basically going out, getting contacts, and doing a lot of the work that sets up our outbound teams for success. We would refer to the outbound team as MDR. And then our inbound teams would be SDR. So the typical progression path would be ADR to SDR to MDR to SMBAE. Very good. Yeah, I, I like that because the, and, and again, I'm going I'm to ask you this question in a second, not to preempt it, but I'm, I'm sure RevOps or Revenue Ops is extremely pivotal and important in, in that whole setup there. But um, yeah, so like the, what, 
what are you what are you looking at like so so what separates highly successful SDRs, VDRs, ADRs, whatever you want to call them, what's the difference between kind of the really successful ones and the ones that aren't so successful? And not necessarily, you know, in, in, in your organization, but in general, what do you, what do you think is, is, the, uh, is the difference there? What can make the difference? Yeah, I think, I, I really think that motivation and hunger is so critical at that juncture because we're not hiring for skills that somebody has today. We're hiring for their attitude and their willingness to go out and get those skills. Very good. So when you, when you think about the people that you're looking to hire, I, you know, we would look a lot at their past history where what, you know, they, you haven't been in sales before, that's fine. In fact, arguably better because you're more moldable, but have you shown that you're, um, that you're perseverant in the face of adversity? Do you look at somebody telling you no, and it makes you want to work harder? Uh, is, is rejection a motivator for you? It, or, you know, are you very competitive? And we look for things in people's CVs and in, in the interviews that would indicate that they had that appetite, uh, that they saw long-term vision in sales and that they were impatient to get there. And also, you know, they were leaving, willing to leave their ego at the door because the other thing we wanted to make sure is, is we're hiring people that are eager to learn, grow, and finding people who part of their superpower is just the humility of, of what they know and they don't know uh, so that they'd be willing to go out, get the knowledge, learn and grow um, as opposed to resting on their laurels and assuming they've sort of made it. It's that, that growth mentality uh, that we were looking for. Yeah. And I think I'd probably add in, in terms of those, those competencies that you're describing, I'd probably add, do they have the ability to actively listen as well? You know, because the, mm. There's so many, and I see it, so many SDRs are so well-versed in the features and attributes of, of a particular solution, but they're not really great at kind of listening to, to what the prospects are really saying, um, you know, to kind of read between the lines and, and ask the appropriate questions to move the conversation forward, that kind of thing, you know. I, I think also um, the um, performance conditions are important, aren't they? And uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, like the question really was around, um, you know, what, what separates kind of good SDRs from, you know, kind of SDRs that aren't necessarily doing a great job. So mm -hmm. my view is that the people that are doing it really well have really good performance conditions, you know, like their onboarding is high, you know, high mm -hmm. class and, you know, they, they, they kind of educate everybody really well on their personas and the, you know their motivations and the buying journey and you know they really have a supportive team um, and it sounds like you guys have that in abundance you know um, but the um, the performance conditions uh, talk to me a little bit about that how important is that do you think yeah absolutely I mean you know that was that was really how we scaled was create was finding what those performance conditions were that worked and then really systematizing them. I mean, the very simple one that you just pointed out was onboarding. Right. And, you know, if you hire the right people, hungry, motivated, willing to learn, they're going to listen, they're going to lean into new knowledge, then all you need to do is you need to build the path to their success and surround them in the kind of way where they're super supportive. They have everything that they need, both from a, a knowledge of the product, sales, skills, and then a support environment from your manager to, uh, to your team. 
and you know, I'll touch on those, you know, the onboarding piece, we really wanted to make this programmatic. You know, sometimes I think we've all been in that situation where, you know, Monday comes around, just coming out of the weekend, you know, you had a good weekend and it's trying to get back into work mode and it's eight in the morning on a Monday and you think, oh, wait, so-and-so starting today. Oh, gee. Okay. Do, am I ready for them? What are we going to have them do? And, and they show up and you just feel behind from day one and trying to get them onboarded and ready to go. And we really wanted to get away from that field. We want to give our sales leaders all the tools that they need so that on day one, they are not wondering, what am I going to do to onboard this person? Am I going to sit in a one-to-one with them in an hour and just splurge everything that I think that they should know? No, we're going to miss things. There's going to be gaps. It's less effective. So we put together a onboarding plan uh, that was really, it's basically day by day, what each person had to do. Um, you know, and kudos to Madison Friedank, who uh, is our, was our program manager. She was actually an MDR manager. We, we moved her into this program manager role because she was so passionate about building the systems for success. And I got to say, it was one of the best things we did to scale effectively to sort of take somebody who'd been in the motion, leading a team and put them in a process building type of role and position because she built out so many of the processes from an onboarding and an ongoing enablement perspective that then our management team really could focus in on the, um, you know, strictly on the, the implementation and, and sharing those trainings uh, as opposed to the building of them. How do you know that? Um, how do you know that your onboarding is successful? How do you measure that? What's what? What are one or two of the, the key things that you look at and you say, "Yeah, we're on track here," or "We're off track," or "That was successful," or "That wasn't successful." How how do you do that? Well, we you know we we entered with I think seventy percent of our uh, BDRs were achieving target in their ramp period. Or actually, let me rephrase that: our ramping. Uh, BDRs were achieving at an aggregate level 70% of the ramp target that we had set for them. And we knew, but we knew. Sounds to me like the target's too low. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. <laughs> I'm not one who's going to be ever arguing for more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it, it's very interesting. So, some folks use kind of you know time to first appointment and all that kind of jazz. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just curious kind of how, how you guys did it. But wow, that's that's quite a statistic, seventy uh, percent. Um, yeah, well, so that was our baseline. So basically, so if our if our team had a target of let's say hundred opportunities for these ramping reps. The ramping reps are doing 70. And at, like DocuSign's model, the pipeline model is built. So at an aggregate level, the team's hitting 100. Because if they're not, then we're not delivering the pipeline that the AE teams need. So, so essentially, this was sort of like a C minus. It was a poor, poor grade. Uh, and so we, we tasked Madison with bringing it up to 100. Um, within a quarter, she was able to do that by implementing those programs. And we, we continue to iterate on them. And of course, the quotas go up and things like that. Um, but I think building that uh, that process was, I mean, that was, it was a very one-to-one relationship with why we saw uh, that attainment increase. So, so okay, again, I'm, I'm blown away by that number as well. And the fact that you've been able to enrich that from 70 to 100 is, is testament to your sales enablement piece, your coaching, your process, your platform as well. But I guess if, if we could just go back to the stat as well, it stuck out in my mind is that when you started, um, you grew from 44 to 170, right? So that tells me you're clearly good at hiring. So my question is, 
in the hiring process, what is it you're looking for? And give me an example of a question that you insist is asked and maybe the best answer you've ever heard to identify this guy or gal is a potential rock star going forward. Yeah, and I think we're, so your question is about hiring BDRs or, or uh, pre-sales reps. Yeah, no, it's, it's like SDR, yeah. MDR, EBR. Like when you see yeah. somebody and you see, you've asked them a question, they answer it in a very sophisticated way, but maybe there's a, an intacid, you know, glint in their eye, et cetera, or there's a, there's a tonality in their voice. They're answering the question the way you want to hear the answer, but what is that kind of X factor that comes out for you or maybe a cited example? Talk to me a bit about that, that gets you excited about a hire. Yeah, that's, um, th there's one question in particular that I think if candidates answer in one way in particular, I feel I'm very motivated uh, to, to hire them, assuming all the other pieces add up. And that is, can you tell me about a failure that you've had? And the way that somebody answers that question is really important because you can just tell me about the failure, right? You can tell me about a time when something didn't really go your way. That's one answer. Uh, you can, somebody could potentially tell me um, about something that doesn't really feel like actually a failure, just feels like they're softing, softballing the, the question and they're avoiding something deeper. But there was one, one lad in particular who answered the question. It was, a, it was a GAA guy and he was talking about how he didn't make um, his local team one year. And he, he talked about it from this perspective of, you know, it was a, it was a deep learning moment for him. You know, he had some confidence going into um, a sort of tryouts or, or however that, that goes about. And he was let down. He just, you know, his own expectations for himself and, and what, um, you know, the answer was going to be in terms of whether you make a team, he, he didn't make a team. And what he did after was really why I was, you know, saying this is the X factor we're looking for is he spent the entire next year preparing, waking up early, lifting weights, uh, running, um, working. I think he had a old, an older brother who was on the team and working with him to get really prepared for the next year's tryouts. Nice. Uh, and then in the subsequent year, he, again, he tried out and he made the team. And that sort of completion of that story, here's your failure, here's your learning, it, and it, it makes you you know, angry is not the right word, but, you know, really motivated. That, that, that just turns a, a bolt in your brain and you think, now I want it more than ever. And you work even harder and you come back the next year at an even better place than people made the team. And that, that's what he had done. And um, it's been a really successful, uh, I think he's actually an AE now, uh, but he, uh, yeah, he hit the ground running. And, you know, again, you're going to get those kind of failures in, in sales. You're going to have the slump, you're going to have the bad months, you know, it's the people who turns that bolt in their brain and makes them want to work harder and do more. Those are the people that have a lot of long-term success. But more importantly, it sounds like he, you know, took ownership of that in terms of kind of what he has to do as opposed to kind of blaming somebody else for, mm -hmm. for not making the team. I think that's hugely important that you kind of look for somebody that has an internal locus of control that, you know, isn't blaming everybody else and every other, you know, um, yeah, they, you know, they didn't like me because I wasn't tall enough or because this or because that, or, you know, the, the, the condition, because the performance conditions aren't always going to be fantastic. And if someone has the ability to say, you know what, I'm in control of what I do 
-hmm. and this is what I'm going to do. Um, you know, and where I, I think that's, that's an extremely uh, astute um, kind of um, insight there uh, for, for our listeners, uh, to be honest with you, Mike, that, um, you know, that's a, that's a really wonderful um, kind of question to, to ask somebody and, and, and get somebody to talk about an area where, you know, they weren't successful. Yeah, I, I think that's a good thing to do. Completely, John. It's personal accountability is what it comes down to. I read a recent uh, book by Yako Willink um, called uh, Extreme Ownership, the uh, former Navy SEAL, mm. and uh, literally spoke to me around that. I mean, you can decide that the world's beating you up um, and, 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 you know, shut the curtains and close up shop, or you can say, I'm going to use this for what it actually was given to me for to become better. You know, I think that's exactly it. Yeah, because that's not an easy job. It's like, you know, that, that entry level job where you're, where you're going in and you're trying to convince somebody that, you know, either sometimes isn't even expecting your call or trying to do that. And to do that multiple times, to get knocked back multiple times, it's not an easy job. No, absolutely not. And, and you guys are totally right. It, it, that self-reflection isn't somebody, something that everybody has. The ability to look back and say, well, if I could have done this better, then I would have made the team. And then to make the changes to do that and, and become better, that, um, you know, that little kick, that motivation, I, I think that's a really good call out, um, Ross and John, on the extreme ownership piece. Um, you know, I'd say the, the self-reflection and the self-ownership as well, you know, really, uh, really key. So I, I have two more questions, Mike. I suppose the first one is you've done, uh, you, you've achieved what we speak to people on a regular basis about. Namely, we speak to a lot of sales leaders, CEOs who are considering internationalizing. They're on the cusp of it. They're at a series B or, you know, a funding round where PE or BC backers are saying, you know, this is the next step for you. You need to do the whole international thing. Maybe just share with us, like, what were some of your biggest takeaways from that adventure you went on? Um, and, and, you know, what do you think you could, um, you know, convey to others to do uh, in that circumstance? Yeah, and it's funny that you, uh, that you bring that up because I had a conversation with a former boss of mine who's looking to do just that. And the, the main thing that I shared with him is my observation is, is really to, to come into a meal with focus and, and not why well, big and broad ambitions are, are you know, something that we, we all in software and tech tend to have. Um, come in with focus. So where are you, where is your land and where will you be hyper-focused in on? Uh, you know, I think it's easy to, and this was my advice to him, is he was looking at going to market in Germany, France, Netherlands, UK, Spain, and Italy right from the onset. And, you know, if it may be a B2C product, uh, that, that's something that could work. I think for the B2B motion, you know, as I told him, it was, hey, maybe start with the UK where you have assets in English already and, and start to focus in on that so you can build that play as you're looking to build out some of the other markets. But my advice to him, and I would say to anyone looking to do that uh, immediate strategy and immediate growth is really take that focus piece. Uh, where are you going to have the, the wins that are going to get you some notoriety and some positive recognition and, and some good customer stories early? Uh, can you focus in on those and start there? If, that, if that's something you have the ability to do with your expectations for the market, 
I, I think that that's a much better way to build a strong foundation uh, as opposed to try to take the elephant down all in one bite. Ah, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you've got to scale out organically in, in markets where you can do so. I mean, at the UK, I kind of makes sense um, from a linguistics perspective, from a cultural perspective. Um, I suppose just finally, as we wrap up here, Mike, um, I suppose as the only English speaking country bar, maybe arguably Malta and Cyprus left in the European Union, um, we speak a version of English here, um, but I'm, I'm keen to understand um, the, the crack spelled C-R-A-I-C, not the narcotic variety. <laughs> uh, you know, what struck you about that? What was your experience of Irish culture and why we're a bit different? You know, we, we feel we, we get work done, we're serious about work, but we don't take ourselves all that seriously in the process. But what was your direct experience of Irish culture, if you could be so bold to share with us? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Ireland and, and Dublin is great crack. Uh, and I, I do mean the Gaelic version um, of that word. Yep. Yeah, I chatted with somebody about this yesterday. They were asking, what was it like over there? And I said, that, you know, without a doubt, the thing that you, know, you have when you get over there is a feeling of welcome. And you don't have that in every country that you travel to. You go to some countries and sometimes you feel like, am I, is this okay for me to be doing? Is it okay for me to be here? And you just never have that in Ireland. You're so... There's such a feeling of welcome. And, and, and that's why you see so many expats there. You see so many international people that came for, they came for six, 12 months and they're there for 10 years. That was half my management team at EMEA was, was um, people from Spain, Italy, the US. And the story was the same. I came here for a year, I've been here for 10. And it's because of that feeling of welcome and um, you know the, the ability of the, the culture to just, adapt i think to uh to new surroundings and you know an evolving tech scene that's changing rapidly um and yet just always be uh be, be entering the day with a smile and uh the right kind of attitude and, and, you know honestly it's just the perfect attitude for sales too fantastic no i love hearing that as you know patriotic person etc obviously selling the platform but at the same time you know to have that first-hand experience of someone who's lived it um, is hugely valuable. Look, I really want to thank you, Mike, for your time and attendance today on the call. It's at tremendous value to our listeners and uh, appreciate it. And if it's okay with you, we might have you back on in the future if you're a Ford. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be uh, the great crack. Fantastic. Ah, thank you, Mike. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.